Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Welcome to this week's episode with Dr. Sarah McClure. I was so happy to have Dr. McClure on today. Uh, We've been scheduling it back and forth for a while, so it was really, really great that we finally could make it happen. I think you're really going to enjoy her episode today. We discussed kind of like she got her PhD at UCSB and now she's a professor here. So we talked about kind of that experience like coming back. We talked about her love of anthropology and kind of how she found her place in uh, the field and the work that she does now. We also at the end had a really nice chat about empowering women in anthropology and other STEM fields in general. And it was really great. So stick around, listen, and enjoy. Hi, Dr. McClure. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. I'm so, so happy to have you here with me today. And so thankful you could make the time to chat. Thanks so much for having me. So recently, uh, you made the transition to the UCSB Anthropology Department with your husband, Dr. Doug Kennett, but I discovered when I was doing some background research that it's more of a return for you guys because you both got your PhDs from UCSB. Yes, that is true. That's so cool. How, so how has the transition been? Does it kind of feel odd to be back on campus, but like in this new capacity? Or has it maybe like made you more comfortable? You're like, oh, I know everything about UCSB. <laughs> Well, kind of a a combination of both. So when I came to UCSB the first time uh, for grad school, I actually came from Germany. I had done my undergrad uh, at the university in Freiburg, and it was my first exposure to the US education system. I had moved from Southern Germany to Southern California, and I had grown up in, in the DC area, so I had never really spent any time in California prior to starting graduate school. And in retrospect, I realized that I think I was probably in culture shock for about two years um, when I first got to UCSB. Um, There were big challenges navigating a new city and grad school and uh, just writing in English, writing term papers in English was, uh, was definitely challenging. 
But at the same time, I met my husband here. So Doug and I met. We've been married for 18 years. Um, and although we left after, um, after I finished my PhD, although I left Santa Barbara, we never really left. So my in-laws uh, live in, in Santa Barbara, and we continuously came back to visit them, always with a bit of a heavy heart and a sigh about having not being able to live in beautiful Santa Barbara. It's um, pretty ideal. <laughs> It is. It's it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful place. And um, we never thought that we'd ever come back here other than retirement. And so um, we're thrilled that it actually worked out that we can be here um, in our professional capacity. So it's great to be back. Um, to answer your question about it being more comfortable or perhaps odd, uh, there are some things that are a little bit strange. So uh, the building, HSSB, was opened my first year as a graduate student. So it's the same building that has the same issues with flooding and you know other sort of infrastructure stuff. Uh, so that is actually just kind of more funny than than anything else. So. You know, knowing your way around when you move somewhere new is is uh, it's a nice thing to be able to do. The faculty now is t pretty much totally different than when I was a graduate student. There are a few faculty uh, that were uh, around when I was here previously, but mostly it's a it's a different faculty. Um, so, campus in general, navigating campus is easy, but the daily life is also really different uh, in the department and also just on a personal level. Living in town with kids now is totally different than when I was a grad student. Um, but it's nice to have some of the old old haunts to go back to where you know we spent quite a bit of time in grad school uh, in various establishments around Goleta and Santa Barbara. Um, so it's really wonderful to be back, to be a boomerang. That's great. I was going to ask, now is there like you have morning traffic probably on your way? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that. There's also just, um, you know, a completely different geography with kids in Santa Barbara. So before I was I was clueless as to where the soccer fields were or where one has a birthday party for a nine year old, you know, all of those kinds of things that now really help structure weekends and daily life. I also did a, kind of came back to Santa Barbara. I did elementary and middle school years here and oh. then I moved to Ventura for high school. So coming back to UCSB has been so interesting because Isla Vista and Goleta is so separate from where I did my middle school years. But at the same time, like I'll go to the Rose Garden at the uh, mission and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have vivid memories of being here like when I was like seven or eight with my mom and taking picnics and now I'm here like for college and in such a different mindset. So yeah, I, I love Santa Barbara. It's amazing. <laughs> what do you enjoy most about being a professor and do you have any favorite classes or like subjects to teach? So what I like be about being a professor is that the teaching element is something that I really enjoy in different kinds of formats. So I like teaching classes, uh, large classes or smaller classes, uh, but in the more formal classroom setting. I enjoy preparing those classes because it allows me to get an overview of one aspect of a discipline uh, or one sort of topic 
that in my daily research, I probably wouldn't otherwise have the chance to, to explore in the same kind of way. So I like the formal teaching aspect. I really love working with students in the lab and in the field. So to answer your question, I think what I like most about being a professor, especially in anthropology, is having the ability to interact with students from freshmen through graduate students in a variety of different kinds of contexts. That's great. Well, as one of your students, I also enjoyed having you as a professor. So, um, so you're now the co-director of the UCSB Zoo Archaeology Lab, and you're spearheading the reorganization and expansion of the Faunal Collection. Uh, so what does that kind of entailed, and um, how are you working on expanding the zoo, zoo archaeological specimens we have in the lab? Yeah, so the Zoark Lab, um, as you know, that, that small area next to the teaching lab, um, is a really important component for students studying uh, collections from California and elsewhere, as well as training undergraduate students in zooarchaeology. And pretty much after Phil Walker's death, um, that space became a little bit uh, neglected. I would say. So when I came in, I had the, uh, the opportunity to garner some resources to give it a little bit of a facelift. So we've been doing a couple of different things in there. One is rearranging the space to make it more user friendly. We also had it painted and the floors cleaned, um, some basic maintenance that had been kind of put off for, for a couple of years. Um, the other thing that we've been able to do in there is uh, organize Phil Walker's collection of random bones. So as you know, Phil Walker was a bioarchaeologist and zooarchaeologist at UCSB for many years, and he taught zooarchaeology. And actually, I took zooarchaeology from Phil Walker in <laughs> that very room. <laughs> and he, one of the things that he always had as part of his class was an extra credit opportunities for students to bring in random bones that they found. And over the decades, boxes and boxes of random bones had accumulated that That's were great. all faunal remains. And mostly- oh, They were all faunal, great, glad yeah. that they were all faunal. <laughs> all animals, all animals. Um, and so what uh, Dr. Kieran had done when she first, um, came to UCSB was organize Phil Walker's legacy collections. And the funnel material was all just put in boxes. So in the past year, what um, a group of us have been doing, and you actually did as part of uh, the Zoart class, was organizing that so that we now have what we're calling the Walker Teaching Collection, um, which is a, a large assemblage of bones from these random animals that Phil had collected throughout his time at UCSB. Um, they are now organized by elements so that as I teach zooarchaeology in the future, we'll be able to pull out examples of different um, types of bone, different types of animals uh, in a teaching collection that's well organized and easily to access. The other thing um, that we're doing is we're going to be actively expanding the faunal collection, the comparative collection that's in, in the lab. Um, this is still a work in progress. Uh, COVID situation has kind of uh, seriously impeded us getting going yeah. on that. 
Um, but in the post-COVID world, uh, we will start seriously adding new specimens to the comparative collection. And we've already established some uh, partnerships with other entities on campus, like the Marine Science Institute, to expand uh, the fish collection, as well as uh, we have some other feelers out there in the community uh, to help with some other uh, skeleton. That's wonderful. Um, so for our listeners that may not understand kind of the importance of a comparative collection, this is actually something I've been meaning to bring up um, on the podcast for a while, is that when you're examining human remains, but importantly with uh, zoo archaeological remains, and this is what I learned in class, was I was so used to the, you know, the human skeleton, the human has a set amount of bones. Well, animals all have different numbers of phalanges or hand bones or, you know, different types of variations of just different different shapes different numbers and Um, so having that comparison which is what she's talking about building in the lab is so important to be able to reference and um, then decide you know is it sheep is it goat is it etc yep exactly let's talk about your research and the work you've done in the Mediterranean, specifically Croatia, I saw that you published, just recently published um, an article, uh, which I'll have linked below for any listeners that want to check it out, um, the paleo diet and health in a mass burial population from a 6,000-year-old mass grave in Croatia. Um, would you tell our listeners a little bit about kind of that study and then um, some of the isotopic results from the paper? And I also realized when I was writing this question that we may have to um, clarify what isotopic chemistry is for some of our listeners that might not know. Sure. So this project is in collaboration with dear colleagues at the University of Zagreb in Croatia. And what it is, is we analyze bones from this 6,000 year old site in Croatia called Potocani. And Potocani is a, a really grim and very sad sad situation where 6,000 years ago, a number of people, uh, 41 people were killed and dumped in a pit. Um, It looks like it was uh, a very violent massacre um, and people of all ages, including kids, were buried in in a shallow pit for for the lack of a better descriptor. Um, What What we were able to do was um, some colleagues in Croatia uncovered this uh, archaeological site several years ago during a uh, rescue excavation. So the site itself started eroding um, after a big big storm, and they excavated the human remains. And then uh, my bioarchaeology colleague, um, Mario Novak, is one of the people who identified and uh, identified the skeletons to age and to sex. And then we did radiocarbon dating. um, So finding out what precise time period uh, this massacre occurred in, as well as uh, stable isotopes. And what the stable isotopes allow us to do, they're a geochemical signature in the bones that document the relative proportion of different kinds of food that people consumed over the course of their life. So as you're eating food, meat, as well as your veggies, 
um, they have a chemical composition and part of that chemical composition is absorbed in the bones and we can then go back and measure this chemical composition. What we measure is the carbon and the nitrogen elements um, or composition within these bones. And what this tells us is it gives us a snapshot of what people were eating and we can compare this to other kinds of health indicators on the skeletons themselves. So what we found in a nutshell is that kids whose bodies change and um, grow a lot faster than adults do, they have a quicker turnaround in this chemical composition based on what they're eating than the adults do. And that allowed us to identify a period of uh, nutritional stress right before the massacre. So it looks like um, these people were already suffering from famine or at least insecure food sources prior to the massacre. And that may have had something to do with why the massacre occurred in the first place, that there was a lot more violence in the area because people were competing for food sources. That's so interesting. I, um, I, when I did this, wrote this episode up, I read it, but I now need to, now I'm going to go back and reread after, after that. Um, so I think it's important to kind of note that your work, you, your field encompasses work with animal and human remains in archaeological context, and then using both data from um, both of those, you analyze and evaluate your research questions. So how, how does that kind of play in and how, I suppose you primarily do work with animal remains and you are a zoo archaeologist, but I'm interested to kind of see how analyzing the two combined plays into your field work and your research? Yeah, so I would consider myself an environmental archaeologist. I'm okay. really interested in the human impacts on the environment, as well as human-animal interactions, and what those interactions, how those interactions help shape landscapes for the long term. So my research is focused on early farming and its spread. And the reason why I'm interested in the spread of farming as opposed to just the origins of farming is because the spread of farming really represents a major ecological reorganization of landscapes. Uh, because you have farmers that come into new areas and they introduce domesticated plants and domesticated animals. And Europe is a great way, place to look at this because these days when you go to Europe, and you're traveling around the Mediterranean region, you'll see hillsides of olive trees and olive groves and maybe some wheat and some sunflowers and sheep grazing. And all of these things are relatively new, newly introduced plants and animals over the course of the natural history of that landscape. And so with the spread of early farming, you have a, one of the most major ecological reorganizations of the planet and it really sets the stage or set the stage for the way that we see the planet today. And in the case for Europe, you know, they've had agricultural agriculture for 8,000 years uh, in one shape, form or another. And I think that there are some lessons to be learned there about the sustainability of agriculture as a practice. That's, that's so interesting. 
Um, I, I just love having people on the podcast. You guys are all just so passionate about your work. You can just hear it like in the podcast. And uh, I just, I think that's why it's so cool to like hear about people's work in addition to reading it is you can hear the passion behind, you know, what they're working on. Um, how did you get interested in anthropology? Was it, did you start college knowing that that's what you wanted to do or did you kind of find a love for it? So when I was in high school, I was interested in history, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with history. And the summer after I finished up high school, before I went off to college in Germany, I had been working in a tourist t-shirt shop in Georgetown and selling way overpriced t-shirts to tourists. And I had had that job throughout my senior year in high school. And I remember sitting at the dinner table with my dad and telling him, I'm like, if this is the only thing I do all summer, I'm going to go insane. And I said, you know, maybe, maybe I could volunteer somewhere. Maybe there's an archive or like archeology. span That would be kind of cool. Maybe there's a place I can volunteer. And my father pointed out that one of our neighbors who lived, well, she lived in the, in the neighborhood. Um, we knew her from the community pool was he thought an archeologist. So I knew her from the pool from swim team and called her up and uh, she said, sure, how about you work in my lab? And that was uh, Mindy Zeter, who's a curator at the Smithsonian Institution. And so I showed up at her lab and within, oh, I don't know, probably three hours or so, I realized I wanted to be exactly like her when I grew up. <laughs> and that's how I got into archeology. span She had me cleaning bones from uh, sites in the ancient Near East. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So to be honest, if you find cleaning bones enjoyable, you know that you're in the right place because I had that exact same experience in Spain. The sun is like beating down on me. I have a toothbrush and my, my, 3000 year old bones in my bucket of water. And I was like, this is awesome. Someone take a picture of me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, I'm in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Something that the reason I, I love asking people how they got interested in anthropology, because kind of early on in the podcast and one of the episodes with Mackenzie Wade, I realized that, you know, we had similar stories of like being drawn into the field and to be and to wanting to become scientists and anthropologists because like the first place we heard and saw of anthropology was with women in, in STEM and these really strong women in STEM. And mine was Temperance Brown on Bones and hers was a picture of someone in a textbook. But, you know, from my perspective as an expiring anthropologist, you and many other trailblazing women in our department are like so inspirational to me. And I was wondering, you know, what advice you would give to younger students that are considering entering the field, you know, entering even other more general STEM fields. Um, Someone like me who's considering, you know, a similar career. Yeah. So, I mean, I... You know, I was first exposed to archaeology by a strong woman, too. Yeah. Uh, so Mindy Theater was, um, well, she still is, uh, an amazing, amazing scholar and an amazing mentor. Um, and so I was fortunate that not only was I exposed to archaeology when I was just out of high school, but I continued on that relationship with her. Uh, so I interned, interned with her as an undergrad and then again as a graduate student. She ended up being on my doctoral committee and to this day she remains an important mentor for me. Um, 
In terms of, of advice, um, let me just tell you a little bit of a story uh, from okay. Mindy, from the time with Mindy. So in 1994, Mindy wrote a book that was based on a demographic survey uh, for, for the Society for American Archaeology, the SAA, um, to look at archaeology and the practice of archaeology and who was doing what, that kind of study, right? And so one of the things that she noticed when she was crunching the data for this book was that women were clearly leaking out of the pipeline, going from undergraduate through graduate into uh, tenure track positions within academia. And she sat me down, I was an undergrad at the time, and Heather Lapham, who uh, was a graduate student at the time, and essentially presented to us the data that she was, that she was about to publish. And her take on it was, all right, the odds are against you. So you have to be excellent and you have to be persistent. <laughs> and that advice really stuck, I think, with both Heather and I. So we've enjoyed academic careers tremendously since then. Heather's at UNC Chapel Hill and I am now at, at UCSB. So something about what she said, I mean, it scared the bejesus out of me at the time, but it was definitely a, a call to not do something half-heartedly. Um, I think these days, when you look at gender issues in academia and in STEM in particular, there are some disciplines that are doing better with finding gender parity than others. And anthropology, I think, is one of them, especially at public universities like the University of California. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of her advice still holds. Um, there is an element of determination or grit that you need to get into STEM. And sometimes that means keep going and faking it or really trusting that your abilities and hard work will lead to a positive outcome. Sometimes you have to you know, fake it till you make it, right? So even yes. if you're feeling insecure, you just keep going anyway and pretend you're confident. That's what I mean Work with faking it. it. <laughs> Um, and there was a time after my PhD when I was trying to get a job. I didn't have a job. I had a PhD. I had a new baby. And the sensible thing at the time would have been for me to be a stay-at-home caregiver to our son, Lucas. But we decided instead to have him be in daycare a few hours a day so I'd have the space and the time to write uh, because I knew writing and getting publications out would strengthen my CV to be able to get an academic job. And it was hard. It was a hard decision. Um, it was going to be a finite decision because we didn't have that kind of money. You know, we were just out of graduate school. Doug had his first job or second job, I guess. Um, and we had to put daycare on our credit card. Uh, but it ended up being an investment in the future. And for me, it was important to, to invest that time in myself to at least give me a chance to, to do the things I know I needed to do in order to be competitive for a job. That's in part where some of that advice comes. You know, sometimes you just need to keep, keep at it and keep going. I also think it's really important to surround yourself with a mentorship team and ask advice when you need it. Sometimes even when you don't think you need it, you should still talk to people about career steps and what to do next or what to focus in on. 
So for me, Mindy was a great role model. Um, but here at UCSB, my advisor was Mike Jokum. And he taught me by example that becoming a successful academic, having a family and living a meaningful life were not somehow mutually exclusive. I think that's a really important element to it as well, because there is a tendency to focus only on the goal of getting that academic job or, or getting that professional job, whatever the, that goal is, um, not realizing the importance of, of maintaining those relationships outside of that particular career path uh, focus that are what help give meaning to, to life just in general. And whatever that means for, for an individual, there are obviously variations on that theme. But for me, it was really important to surround myself with people who share those values. And I've turned to both Mike and Mindy for advice for over 20 years. And to this day, I try and surround myself with friends and colleagues and mentors that share those values that, you know, you will have a positive and productive life um, that can be uh, that that can be really meaningful and well-rounded. Um, luckily, it's easy to do that in this department. You know, it's a very vibrant intellectual community, uh, but it's also a very, I think, healthy intellectual community where many of um, my colleagues have really interesting, you know, aspects to their life, be it their family lives or other interests that they pursue or the kind of writing that they do um, that really share those values of trying to find meaning uh, for, for the academic career. So for me, I also try to mentor that to graduate and undergraduate students to help them find their path to success and whatever success means to them. Uh, but it kind of goes back to Mindy's, you know, determination, grit, and humility, I'd probably add to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was just the most lovely answer and the most lovely advice. I, I'm just sitting here like so happily stunned. I feel like all of that was also applicable to where I'm, I am at right now, like applying to grad school soon. So that was, yeah, I, I can't have imagined a better answer to that. Um, thank you so, so much for your time and your advice and your expertise. It was so lovely to have you on the podcast. And, um, you know, I look forward to having you as a professor or working with you again in the future. Thank you so much, Gabby. Hey, thanks for listening. Give us a follow on Instagram at that anthro podcast for more behind the scenes content. Also, make sure to check out our other episodes and leave us a rating on Apple if you liked us. Thank you.